Well, if you're uh, joining us today for the first time or if you're back after being away for a while, uh, glad you're here. We're on week two of a message series that I've called Sister Wives and Other Bad Ideas That Will Mess Up Your Relationships. And uh, last week I talked about what I called drive-through relationships, the idea that uh, we use relationships as commodities. We just use people and throw them away when we're done with them. And that was last week's message. Today I'm going to talk about having it all and this quest that we have as Americans to achieve the American dream and how it can often damage relationships. Next week I'm going to be talking about taking a test drive. That's the title of the message. And I I realize I've used kind of cryptic titles, but just to give you a preview, next week I'm talking about the idea that is is very popular in our culture, that it's an important thing to uh, live together before marriage, to test one another out, try out, all that kind of stuff before you actually tie the knot. And uh, I'm going to share with you from the Bible, as well as good scientific studies, why sex before marriage is a bad idea that will mess up your relationships. And so I hope that you'll be here next week. And if you've ever had any question about that, or, or maybe you're struggling with that very idea yourself, uh, come check us out next week. I'm not going to lay a bunch of guilt on you. That's not my goal. Uh, but I do hope that you'll listen to what the Bible has to say and consider that maybe that conventional idea that's out in our culture might not be the best idea in the world. So that's next week. But today I want to talk about having it all. Now I've shared with you a couple of times in the past that I come from a collecting family. I come from a family that loves to collect stuff. And in fact, uh, I've said from time to time that my mom's house, and mom, I apologize if you're listening to this on the podcast, but uh, my mom's house looks kind of like those shows you see on TV that's called Hoarders, okay? <laughs> but not in, not in the picture that you see because my mom is meticulously clean, okay? So it, it's not like there's like dead cats and, and mouse... <laughs> feces everywhere. It's not that kind of hoarding. It's just there is stuff everywhere. And it's all clean and neatly arranged. But my mother, my mother collects dishes and bone china cups and glass things. And I, I mean, she just collects all kinds of antique furniture, you name it, she collects all this stuff. And her home is just chock full of stuff. And I come from this family culture uh, of collecting. And so um, I grew up collecting different things. I, collect, I collected toy trains, you know, just different periods of my life I would collect different things. And uh, before Chris and I got married, I had started collecting different antique things, antique furniture, antique pottery, different things. I was just on this antique hoard quest. Any antique collectors in the house? Come on, I'm not alone, right? Okay, a few of us. Thank you. Love all that old stuff. Thank you. And... <laughs> And so uh, before Chris and I were married, this, uh, you know, this was just my pastime, was eBay and garage sales and antique stores, all that kind of stuff, just loved it. And, and uh, once we got married, I found out that there was somebody else that was helping me call the shots in my budget. And uh, my antique addiction came to odds with our new marriage budget. Anybody else ever been there when marriage kind of messes up your personal habits? Okay. And, uh, 
And so we would frequently have arguments because I was, I, I was of the mind, I had such an addiction to collecting stuff that if I found something that belonged to my collection, it didn't matter what the budget said, I was going to buy it, I was going to use plastic, whatever it took, I was going to buy that thing. And Chris didn't come from that world at all, right? She didn't want to overextend, she wanted to stay within the confines of our budget, it was just, there was no discussion. And there, there was at least one time that I can remember that we had an emotional outburst argument in a public place over this very issue. And, uh, and I just wasn't cluing in until one day uh, I had an opportunity to go skiing with some buddies of mine. And on this particular day, Chris had to work. And so I told her I was going skiing and she had, uh, I was leaving her home and, and, and we've always been the kind of couple that does everything together, you know, and I sensed when I left that she wasn't real happy. So at lunchtime, I called her up and she'd already gotten home from work and she was sitting in our house that was full of all my stuff. And, uh, and I said, how are you doing, sweetheart? And there was just kind of this awkward silence on the other side of the phone. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? When you just know that that icy silence means something. And I said again, how are you doing, sweetheart? And she said, I'm just looking at all your stuff and I'd just like to smash it all. <laughs> and I could just imagine in my mind all of that stuff. <laughs> and she didn't, she didn't smash anything. But in that moment, I knew all of a sudden it, it was like the light turned on in my head and I realized we're having a severe problem in our marriage. And it all revolves around stuff. Stuff was getting in the way of our marriage relationship. So I got on the ski lift in this particular run. I just, I just chose to ride the lift by myself because I was really bothered by this conversation I just had with my wife. We'd been married just a short time. And I was riding up the ski lift and I began to pray and I said, God, you've got to give me some wisdom here. And uh, it was one of those times in my life, it doesn't happen to me very often, but one of those times when I felt like I heard God speak to me so clearly. And he said, Russ, get rid of the stuff. Just get rid of the stuff. Sell the stuff. And I'm like, well, God, I love my stuff. (laughs) And I just felt like God said, get rid of the stuff. So my mom and my sister were running an antique business at the time, and I took all this stuff that was a point of contention between me, and we put it all up for sale, sold it all. Um, I had some beautiful things that we just sold, got rid of. In fact, uh, my mom did a show up in Kalispell, and the, the actress Andy McDowell owns something that I once owned. So there's my claim to fame, Andy McDowell. How about that? But you can't say that. <laughs> But anyway, the point of it is, there are times in our lives when our quest for stuff, whatever stuff means for you, might be different than for me, but there are times in our lives when stuff gets in the way of relationships, and that's what we're talking about today. Uh, When I was doing my research for this message today, I I came across some blogs that uh, were written by people that were talking about this American quest that we have to have it all. I just Googled having it all, and, and some of these blogs came up, and I came across a very interesting blogger who just made a description 
of what the American quest for having it all looks like. And it's up here on the screen for you. Uh, This particular blogger identified it by five things. Uh, We want it all by having a vehicle that we're proud of. Uh, Driving a Chevelle just isn't going to cut it, right? We want a vehicle that we're really proud of. We want to own our own home. That's part of the American dream. And uh, for those of you that are renting, you probably have in your mind that someday my goal is to own my own home. Some of you might not feel that way, but uh, most of us, if we're Americans and we've subscribed to this dream, that's the idea. We want education for our children. That's really important to us in our quest for having it all. And then number four, we want financial independence at retirement. Uh, We want to be comfortable and taken care of. And then finally, we want good looks and a healthy body. And this was the summary of what it means to have it all in America. Would you agree that that's a pretty good description of, of, of our, our American way of life, right? Now, this particular blogger said, though, the problem with these five things is once we've achieved those five things, we usually move on to five more. Because we're never really happy with what we have, right? And here's the next five. We want more vehicles, maybe a boat or a camper. Uh, We want a bigger house or maybe a vacation home. It's not enough to have education for our kids, but now we want our kids to have a leg up in the world. Uh, We don't want just retirement income, but we want income that's going to lead to wealth building. We want to leave a legacy in the world. And then finally, we don't want to just be healthy, but we want to look younger. And so if we've achieved all these things, we start keeping all the plastic surgeons in town in business, right? (coughs) And the point of this blogger's uh, article was this. The more we have, it seems the more we want. Wouldn't you say that's true? The more we have, it seems the more we want. And the problem with this quest is that it typically damages our relationships. The quest for having more and more and more typically damages our relationship. So today I want to take us to a, to a New Testament character that uh, in all likelihood many of you have probably never heard of, a, a guy by the name of Demas. And I would like to share with you the little bit of a story of Demas that we find in the New Testament. We do have note cards up here on the sides of the stage, and there's some at the Welcome Center if you want to grab those this morning. Yep, on both sides. And the story of Demas is very, very interesting. We don't know a lot about this guy, but I'm going to share with you something, uh, some things about him that we do know, and then uh, take a look at how his life ended and how it impacted his relationships. We read about Demas in the New Testament in three places the book of Colossians, the book of of Philemon, and then finally in the book of 2 Timothy. And what's interesting is that these three books in the New Testament were all written by the Apostle Paul. And, uh, And these three books weren't written like stories of Jesus or historical books or anything like that. These three books of the Bible are actually letters to real people that the Apostle Paul knew. In fact, we don't even really know if he knew that he was writing things that would end up in the Bible, uh, but he was writing, we believe, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but these were letters. That's what these documents are. 
And in Colossians and in Philemon, Paul mentions this guy named Demas, and he uh, is simply sending greetings to people from Demas along with other people that Paul was associated with. So what we know about Demas then was that he was a part of the Apostle Paul's church planting team. He was a part of the Apostle Paul's church planting team. And so what Paul was doing is he was traveling around Asia and he would spend a year or two or three years in a particular city and would uh, lead people to faith in Jesus Christ and help them grow in spiritual maturity. And then he would move on with his team to the next, to the next city. And he was aggressively planting churches throughout Asia. I take a lot of inspiration from the Apostle Paul because we believe that Jesus has called us to plant more churches in the state of Montana. And so that's why Pastor Bruce has gone to Great Falls and we we're, we've, we're starting a Connect Campus there. And then in the future, we want to go to other cities in Great Falls and keep planting more churches. And this is what the Apostle Paul did. And he had a team of leaders just like I do working with him. Demas was one of those people. In these, these books in which Demas is mentioned, uh, Paul mentions other uh, people that were with him, like Luke, who was a physician, uh, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And these were the leaders that were working with Paul. Demas, Demas was a part of that team. It's interesting because um, uh, the name Demas means popular, so he was probably wearing super fly clothes, you know, and uh, Abercrombie and Fitch or something, you know, I mean, Demas was probably a really super cool dude. In Philemon, though, Paul calls Demas my fellow laborer. This was somebody that Paul was close to, all right? So this is what we know about him, but tragically, at the very end of Paul's life, as he's writing one more letter to his friend Timothy, Paul writes this, and it's up here on the screen. Paul writes, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I looked it up in another version. It says pretty much the same thing, but it's, it's worded a little bit differently. Paul says, Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and he has gone to Thessalonica. So what do we know? Really two things. He loves the things of this world. He, he loves his stuff, whatever that meant for Demas. And he's deserted Paul to go to another city. I was reading and, and, and I was one wanting to know, you know, what attracted Demas to Thessalonica? What's the significance of Thessalonica? And I found out a lot of things about Thessalonica. It was a big city. It was like the New York City of that time. Uh, lots of activities, lots of wealth. People were making all kinds of money. It was, it was a great place to live. There were brothels everywhere in this city. Uh, it's possible that Demas was from Thessalonica. Maybe he had family there. We don't really know what the attraction was for Demas, but we know that's where he went. And the reason he went was because he loves the things of this life. And if we're going to take any lesson from Demas, what we're going to learn is that when we love the things of this life, we are tempted to desert our most important relationships. When we love the stuff, 
It gets in the way of real relationships. Do you know what I'm talking about? When we love the things of this life, we're tempted to desert our relationships. I could tell you all kinds of stories. I did, uh, I, I did an, a bunch of research yesterday, and I was trying to find examples, tell you stories about like celebrities who had these glorious love affairs, and, and you could Google celebrity marriages and why they fail, and you could read all the stories that I read about the, the Jennifer Lopez's and Ben Affleck's, and, and uh, I mean, there's, there's dozens of them, and it's interesting to read the bloggers and find out what they think destroyed celebrity marriages. Do you know what the number one thing is that they believe destroys celebrity marriages? The pursuit of wealth. Destroys celebrity relationships. I could tell you stories today about spiritual leaders. And some of you know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you followed some of the big name spiritual leaders in in 20th century Christianity, you know how they pursued more and more and more and bigger ministries and, and bigger homes and bigger staffs and more fame, more fortune, give more money. God wants you to be wealthy. That whole message has led many spiritual leaders to not only ruin their ministries, but lose their marriages as a result. And it happens again and again and again. But it's not just big stars. It's not just celebrities. It happens every day to ordinary people inside the church and outside of the church. And what I want you to know today, the big idea of today's message is this. The quest to have it all destroys relationships. The quest to have it all destroys relationships. Let me read four verses for you from the Bible. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless it is to think that wealth brings true happiness. Hebrews 13 says, don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. I think this verse is so interesting because Uh, what this is telling us is that if we trust in money, we're losing an opportunity to really trust God. You hear what I'm saying? We don't need money to make us feel secure, even though that seems to be what, what, that's such a basic impulse for all of us. It's our relationship with God that brings security. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I want you to notice something here. It doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? It says what? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's a heart issue. I've known people in my lifetime who were very, very wealthy, but they never got taken with the love of their money. They were able to somehow hold it with an open hand. And and it's an an important principle for us to learn. Whether we're rich or whether we're poor, you have to learn that money isn't the source of your security. And loving money is only going to lead you to disaster. And then I love this last one from Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. says this, wisdom and money can get you almost anything, but only wisdom can save your life. Only wisdom can can save your life. This week, we had a very interesting thing happen in our family. Chris works at the hospital, and, uh, 
And for those of you that don't know, Chris works in the laboratory helping to diagnose disease, and she's what's called a histotechnologist. And she's very good at what she does. She's the team lead, and she's got a great job that she really, really loves. But over the course of the years that she's worked, she's had a very good working relationship with a company that supplies equipment for laboratories all over the world. And uh, in their working relationship over the years, every once in a while, they'll say, Chris, why don't you come to work for our company? And they've, they've worked very hard to try to get her uh, to move to Arizona or to go on the road as a salesman or whatever. And, and Chris always says, nope, I, I love what I'm doing. Uh, you know, it's, it's not about the money. I, I'm, you know, I'm sticking right here. And, and this week, without any uh, warning, uh, a woman walked into Chris's laboratory from this company and offered Chris a job. They, they want her. They want her right now. And they're offering her $20,000 more than she's making right now. Uh, that's a lot of money, right? It's a lot of money. So uh, Chris tells me, Chris tells me what this is, you know, that this happens and stuff. And, and the two of us talk very briefly on the phone. And you know what? We don't even have to pray about it. We don't have to talk about it. We don't have to pray about it because the job entails her traveling Monday through Friday on the road as a salesman, which would mean I wouldn't have my wife with me five days out of seven means she wouldn't be able to work with all of you the way she does here at the church, and she'd be gone. What would happen? Sure, we could make all kinds of more money, uh, maybe buy a bigger house, buy more cars, buy a boat, whatever it is. I mean, wouldn't that be cool? But what would happen? Our relationships would suffer. Our relationships would suffer. So we, don't have, we, don't, we didn't pray about it. We didn't even think about it. It's just not an option. Why? Because for us, number one, our relationship is more important than anything. And, and we're not going to put that relationship at a risk. And, and our church relationships are so, so important to us. So even though Chris could make way more money, we're not even going to consider doing that. It's not part of what we're after. We're not after wealth. We're after significant relationships. And we know that the pursuit of money tends to destroy relationships. Does that make sense? <clears throat> Here's what First John chapter 2 says. It says, all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. I want to highlight those three things for you. The lust of the flesh talks about those things that this body desires, craves. It might be sexuality. It might be uh, that drink or that drug that makes you feel better. It might be food. It might be what... There's all kinds of cravings. You know what they are for us. It's those things that we just want to satisfy that this body is demanding. It's the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes talks about all those things that we're attracted to visually, beautiful clothes, fancy cars, attractive homes in the best neighborhoods, whatever it is that we see and we say, I want that. It's, it's our eyes drawing us away to what's truly important. The pride of life is talking about that quest that some of us are on for recognition and acknowledgement. Some of us want to be famous. Some of us want to get climbed to the top of the company. We want to be in control. We want to be respected. We want to be honored by the people around us. That's the pride of life. And the Bible says it's not from God, but it's from the world. 
And the sad part is, is that those of us that pursue those things, not only do we damage our relationship with God, but we damage our relationships with everybody around us. The pursuit of having it all destroys relationships. And if we were to apply this to that Bible character, Demas, you know what? We could, we could conjecture, we could, we could guess what it was in his eyes. Uh, maybe, maybe it was the lust of the flesh. Maybe it was those prostitutes in Thessalonica that he just wanted to go and be a part of that culture. Or maybe it was the beauty of the city and the, the attractiveness. Maybe it was the comforts of being home with his family. One of the things that I, I think makes a lot of sense he knew that Paul was coming to the end of his life, that Paul was going to die a martyr and it was going to be an ugly, painful death. And I wonder if Demas just couldn't, couldn't bear the humiliation of dying for the gospel that he had worked so hard to plant churches all over Asia. It was a humiliating death and I think maybe his own pride just drove him to desert his life mission and his life call. I don't know what it was for Demas, but I do want to ask you this question this morning. Which one of it is, is the stumbling block for you? Is it the lust of the flesh? Is it the lust of the eyes? Or is it your pride that tempts you to abandon your relationships with other people? Maybe even tempts you to abandon your family. Maybe tempts you to abandon your God and go over all the stuff. Go for the stuff. What is it that tempts you? Would you take just a moment to identify? Is it the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life for you? And then would you ask yourself this question? What relationships in my life will suffer if I give in to that temptation? Will my spouse suffer if I give in to that that desire that my flesh is craving? Will my kids suffer? Will, will my church family suffer if I just leave everything and go for everything? If I've just got to have it all and I'm just going to leave everybody in my dust to pursue that thing? Who will suffer? And if you can identify what your stumbling block is and who's going to suffer, then you're well on your way to saying no to the things that will destroy the most important relationships in your life. Because stuff always gets in the way of relationships. Now, I always like to end by giving you some next steps. And this morning, I want to end by uh, giving you three things that the Bible tells us are worth pursuing. Um, and, and these might be surprising to you. And I was sharing them with some, some of my team this last week. They were kind of surprised. And so th these might surprise you, but these are from the Bible. Three things that the Bible tells us are really worth pursuing. The first one is this. It's well worth pursuing joy in your work. Find joy in your work. Ecclesiastes 3 says, I concluded that there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. People should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor for these are gifts from God. Let me tell you, if you are in a job that you are enduring just for the purpose of making money, I want you to know you're missing the best part of life. Life isn't about just making money. Life is about really finding joy in what you do. 
And I know that from time to time, I've had to work jobs that I didn't really want to do just to scrape by. But I'm thankful that I've been blessed to have jobs I love. I love being a pastor. Do you know that? I love being a pastor. And some of you, every once in a while, somebody says, I wouldn't have your job for all. I just wouldn't do your job. No, thank you. Well, I wouldn't do your job either. Um, I love my job. Chris loves her job. And we don't make all the money in the world. We're not wealthy, but we love what we do. And I want to encourage you, find joy in your work. And and it might mean that you say, you know what? The money's not worth it. I'm going to find something that I love. It might mean a career switch. For those of you that are younger, let me say to you, if you're in college, most of our students are gone now, uh, but if you're in college or you're considering becoming a student, don't just pursue the highest paying jobs. Find what you're good at, find what you're going to love and go for it. And most importantly, find out what God has gifted you to do with your life. Does that make sense? Second thing the Bible tells us is worth pursuing is this one. Find a good spouse. Find a good spouse. In fact, uh, on your note cards, just mark out the word good. Mark out the word good and put the word great, okay? Put the word great. Did I say something funny? Oh, you're not loving me. I'm sorry, Tina. Tina needs a great spouse, okay? (laughs) Good luck with that. Oh, Sonny. <laughs> okay, now, now I have to help. Tina is a great woman. I just want to say that. Tina's part of our team. <laughs> Tina is our church book keeper. She's gifted. She's godly. She's beautiful. She will make a great wife. So... Uh, single men, if you're not on our radar, let me know. I'll set you up with Tina. <laughs> you're going to get so many dates. <laughs> Here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. Proverbs 18 says, A man who finds a wife finds a treasure, and he receives favor from the Lord. Listen, there's value in finding a good spouse. And I love Proverbs 31. In fact, the whole chapter is great. But in in verse 10, here's what it says. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. She's far more precious. Thank you for that amen. Well-timed. I would say amen to that. I am so blessed to have an excellent wife. And listen, please hear me. If you're single, please hear me. An excellent wife or an excellent husband isn't about finding arm candy, okay? You know what I'm saying? It's not about arm candy. It's about finding an excellent person, a person of character, a person of integrity, a person that loves God above everything else, a person who has morals, a person who works hard, a person that shares your values. And if all you're looking for is arm candy, Young men, young women, if it's all about arm candy for you, let me tell you, your life is going to be so disappointing. Find an excellent person and marry that person as soon as you can, and you're going to be blessed, okay? Now, let let, let me just throw this out. Not everybody's called to be married. The Bible even talks about people who have a gift of not being married. So if you don't want to be married, we're all cool with that. More for the other people that are looking. Okay. (laughs) I might also say this, 
My wife is always on the lookout for good husbands and wives for the people she loves. So if you're looking, make sure you know my wife. She'll match match it. I should stick to the script. Number three. Here's the third thing that is worth pursuing according to the Bible. Find the savior of your soul. Nothing is more important than this. Find the savior of your soul. Listen to these verses. Just, Just listen to these. Isaiah 64. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Romans 7 says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And then the answer is in the very next chapter, Romans 8 verse 1 says, Now there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Find the Savior of your soul. Are you Are you living in shame and guilt and condemnation for the mistakes of your past? I want you to know today that that you don't have to live in that any longer. Jesus has offered himself to wipe away your past, give you a fresh start, a brand new beginning. Uh, Jesus called it being born again. It's like coming into the world without a past at all. And and it's wonderful because Jesus will give you a fresh, brand new start. And there's nothing that you can do in this life more important than making sure that you have found the Savior of your soul. If you want to have it all, start with Jesus. And you're going to find that he's going to give you everything you can dream of that is worth having. All right, why don't you put your things aside and and let's pray this morning. Father God, thank you for blessing us in so many ways. If we're really careful and take good inventory of our lives, Lord, we can see that we live with such blessing in our lives. The privilege of breathing and and living in this beautiful place and having people in our lives that we love, they're just privileges. But more than anything else, Jesus, thank you for loving us enough to provide a way for us to escape the penalty of sin, to escape the shame, and to escape eternal punishment. Jesus, you made a way for us to reconnect with God, and we're so grateful. And Lord, as we take inventory of ourselves this this afternoon, Uh, I'm sure most of us could say that we've all been sucked into this American dream of having it all. And many of us, Lord, have, have stumbled with the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life. And today, Jesus, we want to turn our backs on sin. We want to say yes to loving you. And we want to say yes to loving our spouses and our kids and our parents, the people that are in our lives that are most important to us. Lord, help us to always value relationships more than the stuff that gets in the way. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.
We're going to close this morning by sharing in communion today. And so our servers are coming to serve you. Um, and as they come, uh, what I want to say to you is, is here at Connect, we practice open communion, which just means simply you don't have to be a member of this church to participate. But uh, we invite you to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus with us in this act of worship. Uh, as you're served, uh, you'll, you'll get a, a piece of broken bread and a cup. And would you hold those emblems until everyone is served and then we'll eat and drink together. So go ahead and serve us. And uh, would you worship along with Scott and the rest of the band as they lead us this morning? I've always thought that it's very interesting that the word communion comes from the same root word that the word community comes from. And uh, when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it and he said, take and eat this. It's my body that's broken for you. But at other places in the Bible, uh, we read that we are the body of Christ. All of us who are Christians are called the body of Christ. So there's a couple of things happening here. We're remembering the sacrifice of Jesus as we share in communion but we're also acknowledging that all of us are bound together through the sacrifice of Jesus into one community. And so as we eat and drink this morning, would you just keep that in the center of your mind that first of all, Jesus has made a way for each one of us to be forgiven, but he's also called us to love one another deeply as one body. So let's pray and ask Jesus to bless this bread and this cup. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. And today as we eat this bread, we remember that it is your broken body. And we thank you, Jesus, for your unspeakable gift. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of one another. And today, Lord, we strengthen our resolve to live with the people you've called us to, loving them deeply and well. So we eat this as we remember you, Jesus. Blessed as we do. And this cup, Jesus, you said represents your shed blood. Today, Jesus, as we drink, would you wash us clean of anything that separates us from being in wholehearted fellowship with, with the Father, as well, Jesus, as anything that would separate us from one another. Cleanse us from sin. And Lord, create us new from the inside out, we pray. We remember you as we drink this and we ask you to bless this cup. Well, I am so glad that you were here today. Good to worship together, yes? Learn together, fellowship. Hope you have a wonderful week. Uh, hope to see you next week when we talk about taking a test drive. Uh, invite somebody that maybe needs to hear that message for next week. And uh, have a great week. Maybe not. Plunge Fest is next Sunday, yeah. So we'll see you then. God bless you, everybody.